Military Mom Talk Radio. We know behind every soldier, sailor, airman, and marine is the family supporting them. With over 200 episodes in 17 countries, over five seasons, with three million monthly listeners, we are Radio Strong. Now, here are your hosts, Sandra Beck and Robin Boyd. Hey everybody, this is Sandra Beck, and I'm here today with Kara Isaac, who's coming to us from New Zealand, and Angela Breidenbach, who's coming to us from Montana. Angela is my co-host for this um, romance novel series, and Angela, it's so much fun because we have the best time together. And we do. I mean, how many books have you written? What do you do? How can people find you? Like, let's get that off the table first so we can get over to Kara. Well, thank you. I am on book number 18. I'm writing right now for Barber, um, and I'm writing a Western historical romance, and it's called Right on Time, which is ironic because they had to give me a few extra days <laughs> for my <laughs> deadline. Um, uh, and I am in Montana, so right now it is noon in Montana, and I'm just dying to hear what time it is because I was trying to coordinate all of us from our times. I'm, I'm dying to hear what Kara says about time. You can find me at Angela Breidenbach. Dot com, and I am the president of the Christian Authors Network, and I am thrilled to tell you all that there is an upcoming conference that we can meet you at at the ICVM 2019, where you can learn writing and screenplay and filmmaking coming up in November in Tennessee, and that's, that's my next big conference where I'll be, where I can meet people in person. Yay, we love that. All right, so let's introduce Kara Isaac coming to us from New Zealand. What time is it there? Because it looks really dark. Yeah, it is 6 a.m. on Thursday in New oh, Zealand. Okay, that's okay. Well, you know, it's not too late there. I was hoping I didn't wake you up at like two in the morning to be on the show. No, but it's but Thursday. I have, done, I have done interviews at two and three in the morning, so we wouldn't be the first one if it was. <laughs> so, Kara, tell us about you. You know, you have. Um, you have five books, is that correct? I do, yes. So I've got, I'm a hybrid author, so I've got three books with Simon and & Schuster, and I've got two that I have uh, indie published over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my family and I live in Wellington, New Zealand. I've got three small children, they're seven, five, and two. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's, it's a pretty crazy time. My husband is a pastor at our, at our church and, um, and my real job is I, um, I work in our public service. So it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a busy life, but it's a great one. Oh, wait a minute. Come on. Real job. Like, you know, I have a real job. I'm in tech, <laughs> you know, and it's like, you know, and yet you're a mom, you know, of three kids all under the age of and a pastor's wife. And a pastor's wife, so no Sundays off for you, girly. Um, no, no. Sunday's my flying solo day. So Sunday's off here. <laughs> and, and this is proof that you can write at any time in your life because, yes. you know, I did it backwards where I didn't start writing until well into my forties because I thought I needed to just be available to my children at home. Mm-hmm. And you have proven that that's not the case. You can write when your children are at home. Yeah, I mean, I started writing over 10 years ago now. So before I got married and before I had children, um, you know, and if you love it, you just find a way to, to make it work. And, you know, you, you, you do the juggling and, and you, do, you do your best, but you just find a way to make it happen. 
All right, so I'm just going to sit over here. I'm the big fat excuse maker because I wrote in my 20s and then in my 30s, I didn't do anything. Like, I mean, I worked and I raised children, but um, I admire you because I I couldn't do that. I couldn't, I didn't have the bandwidth in my brain to handle my kids as a single mom and then work full time. I did fits and starts, um, you know, like I would start to feel really guilty and really mad at myself for not living my dream. But then I'd be like, oh yeah, the mortgage has to pay. The car payment has to be paid. And then, you know, like I would spiral down. So I really do admire you for being able to juggle all that. That was something I couldn't do. Yeah. Well, I mean, I admire you because this is only possible because I have an incredible supportive husband and every now and then he goes away, you know, on a trip for 10 days and he comes home and I'm like, people do this by themselves all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm done. After 10 days, I'm I'm tapping out. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us what is your writing day look like? You know, we're, we're going to be listened to by not only readers, but writers. So I always like to give the inside skinny on what it looks like in a writer's life. Like what's a typical day? So for me, um, a, a typical writing day is I, um, generally don't do, um, much at all during the day. So, Um, Most of my writing is done at night after the kids are in bed. Um, And then every now and every now and then when I'm, you know, facing a big deadline or juggling multiple projects, I take um, a day or days off and I disappear. I used to have an absolutely favorite haunt in my Central City Library. I'd go and write there for days. And unfortunately, it just got um, earth condoned as not being safe for earthquakes. So <laughs> I've lost my favorite writing place. Um, but yeah, I am, I'm very much a, an evening writer. I'm in awe of the writers who can get up at, you know, four o'clock in the morning and do two hours before their kids get up. But that's just, it's never been something that's worked for me. Um, so yeah, I, there's, I, I want to, because I work full time as well, you know, when I get home, I want to have, I want to, be um, committed and present with my kids. So as much as I can, I um, I keep keep the writing until the evening um, when they're when they're all hopefully safely tucked up tucked up in bed. I love hearing that because I'm also a night owl writer, and my favorite time it feels. Nope, we lost a little bit of Angela. We're gonna we're gonna wait till she comes back. Um, when um when i think about what you have to do to create a book are you a plotter are you a planner do you have the story in mind before you um you know before you sit down and write or do you just sit down and see what comes out um i'm very much a pantser um so <laughs> with two characters they're usually the first things that come to me Uh, and then I'll have I'll have an idea of kind of what I guess their big struggle is or what the the big thing is that's keeping them apart Uh, and then everything everything else kind of has to fall into into place as I write Um, and my my critique partners call me an extreme pantser because often I don't even write in order I often write the beginning and then I write the end and then I Oh my gosh, you fill them in. The- yeah, I I, I kind of get ideas and and scenes and and um and kind of flashes of ideas about what's what's happening. And often it takes me a long time to actually put those all together into something that's coherent. 
Uh, and then thankfully I have an amazing editorial team who, who really helped that um, come together and, and become, a, become a story and I absolutely couldn't do it without them. That's so interesting. I mean, you know, because we, we have all kinds of writers on the show and we've got, you know, people who plot down literally every scene and then others, like you called them a pants or fly by the seat of your pants. Um, it's, it's so interesting. I guess, you know, you look at the variety of books out there and you look at the, the, just the sheer number of authors. Everybody does it. Rob, I think this is a good time to thank our sponsor. Today's episode is being sponsored by Grove Collaborative. Now, if you guys haven't been to Grove Collaborative, you have to go check it out because they have lots of super cool different products, um, especially if you care about the environment, you're going green and you want to have an all natural home or all natural mm -hmm. beauty products. They have a lot of great stuff there. And for a limited time offer, when my listeners go to grove.co slash military mom, you'll get a free five piece fall gift set from Mrs. Myers and Grove free shipping, and a free 60-day VIP trial. For a limited time only, you can also choose from best-selling fall scents like apple cider, acorn spice, Melman pumpkin spice, which is exclusively sold at Grove. Go to grove.co slash militarymom to get this exclusive offer. Grove.co slash militarymom. They do have lots of super cool products, Rob, and I went on there. I got a bunch of travel stuff. I got these bug bombs. I got this um, great skin after skin um you know their own after after sun skin products which are really good and my bird's bees because you know me and the bird's bees especially their tinted lip balm it's better than any seriously better than any lipstick you'll ever wear any lip tint you'll ever wear it tastes good it smells good it looks good mm -hmm. and your lips feel fabulous after it i mean and rob you a big one you like both you like mrs meyer and you like burt's bees i do i do and i have to say grove does make it so easy to switch to all the natural products that you your household wants. They carry brands like Mrs. Meyer's Seventh Generation, Method, and Burt's Bees, um, all right there at uh, Grove.co. And their best-selling Grove-made products like seedling paper towels and toilet paper and Grove dirt detergent dispenser that cuts plastic waste by 80% and all 100% recycled plastic trash bags all in one place at Grove.co. And you're right, Mrs. May Mayers has been one of my um, go-to products for a long time. And I love the fact now that I can just go to Grove.co and, and be getting it. Instead of a, a story that uh, I had switched to the um, Mrs. Meyers hand soap and because it has an olive oil base to it and um, my husband has a, a habit or not a habit but a problem with cracked hands and all of a sudden he said my hands are really feeling better. What are we doing differently? And I said, well, I changed out the soap, the hand soap. Truly made a difference in how how his skin is is healing. So they are have always been my go-to product. Well, and I live in Southern California where, you know, everybody turns into the crypt keeper the minute they turn off the plane because it's so dry here. It is the desert. And I happen to live in the high desert, which means it gets really cold, really hot and super dry and it's tough on your skin. And there's a bunch of these balms that they have on there and they have one, you know, that is really made for uh, after sun care. Yeah, Rob, yeah. I put that on my face every morning. I don't even, you know, yes, I go in the sun, but it's, it's made for that, but it's so thick but it's so light and it's not greasy and it feels really good and it's 
a lot of their products have helped, especially the Burt's Bees stuff, they've helped yeah. kids who are teenagers with their acne. So their skin gets dry, but then they have breakouts and you want to coat it with stuff. So, you know, obviously I'm not a dermatologist or a doctor, but I like that we can go to Grove and get everything in one place because it's 25 minutes for me to get to a Target or a Walmart. You know, it's a, it's yeah. a haul. And so to have it delivered right to my door, you know, is like really great for me. But even more importantly, after caring for my mom who died of breast cancer a couple of years ago, I really started to get aware of how many harmful chemicals were in many of our cleaners. You yes. know, things that we just, you know, use without thinking because that's what our moms did. And I don't want to be sick like my mom, and I certainly don't want to die like my mom. Um, mm -hmm. I know I'm going to check out eventually, but... <laughs> You know, if I can make it healthier, and especially for my pets, they lay all over my floors, Rob. They, mm -hmm. They're they licking everything up. They're, you know, so Grove really makes it easy that I don't have to go to a bunch of different stores and then search endlessly online for products and read all that stuff. I trust them to do it because if a half a million families trust Grove Collaborative to pick out products to make their homes healthier and happier... And they not only work with all these different manufacturers, but have their own mm -hmm. manufacturing line. To me, that's really important. It really is. And to be able to trust the, the, the name, I definitely trust. If I go through Grove and I want to try a new product, I feel so comfortable trying something that I have found on Grove.co because I know that they have approved it. It's sort of their, uh, their approval. And I certainly want things that are more natural in my home. I, I don't have little ones crawling on the floor anymore, but uh, if I do have somebody visiting me or just even my pets, I don't want my pets uh, walking and then uh, clean, cleaning themselves. If I've had chemicals on the floor, I want everyone in my household to be healthy, and I know I can trust Grove.co to do that. Absolutely. Plus, shipping is fast and free on your first order. Now, Rob and Cara and Angela, for a limited time, when my listeners go to grove.co slash militarymom, you'll get a free five-piece fall gift set from Mrs. Meyer and Grove. Free shipping and a free 60-day VIP trial. For a limited time only, you can choose from the best-selling fall scents like apple cider, acorn spice, mum and pumpkin spice, which is exclusively sold at Grove. So go to grove.co slash militarymom to get this exclusive offer, grove.co slash military mom. Now, I just want to ask you, Kara, on your um, Audible book, your book is narrated by Angela Daw. Is oh. it weird to have somebody else read your book? Like, how did that feel? Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was really funny because uh, the the company producing it sent me a couple of auditions for for different narrators, mm -hmm. and it's kind of like you're you're listening to this narrator and trying to connect them with this character who's lived for so long in your head, and thinking, oh, you know, Paige is my heroine in that book, so does she sound like Paige? Can I see her being Paige? Um, but I mean, she did an absolutely incredible job. I was so thrilled with how it turned out. And you know, I would love to do, love to do another one um, with her because I, I mean, narrators are just the brilliant voice actors. And so it just brings such a different level of life into the story that you don't get to see on the page. So um, yeah, it was definitely strange at first, but then it was really wonderful to see Paige brought to life in just a completely different way. 
I think that's so exciting. And so your book is Then There Was You, uh, and it's narrated by Angela Daw by Kara Isaac. I'm just going to give that code again one more time. Visit audible.com slash motherhood or text motherhood to 500-500 to get started today. Now, Angela, you have you have how many different – you have four Audible books, and then right. you have Tristan Leader, Forrest Leader, and Elizabeth Wells all voicing your books. Talk to me about that. Elizabeth Wells did the first one, uh, A Healing Heart, and she is an actress from the movie Selma, and she does other, you know, other things as well. She's done stage and screen, but her voice is just, it's so beautiful. It's just velvet. And that was my first experience with audiobooks. But like Kara, I decided that I was going to do the hybrid thing. And so when I got my rights back to um, the debutante queen and 11 Piper's piping and taking the plunge, I decided to go to Audible with those myself. And my son and his wife have both been uh, in school. They had gotten their degrees in music performance and in drama. And so I had them voice my first book, The Debutante Queen. And I just, I love the result. And then Tristan went on and did the 11 Pipers Piping and Taking the Plunge. So it was really fun to see them. And it's really fun to hear the results from the narrators, whether they liked the book or not. And sometimes uh, they even caught like a typo. And that was embarrassing because the book was already up. And it's like, ah, I had to fix the typo. But it, it was a really neat experience to see how they portrayed the characters, but also how they experienced the book themselves and what they liked about it. You know, that was neat. Well, yeah. And so you can listen to these audio books. Um, you know, Angela's name is Angela Breidenbach and Kara Isaac. It's K-A-R-A Isaac, I-S-A-A-C. And Angela, I'm going to give your mouth full. Angela is easy, A-N-G-E-L-A, but Breidenbach is B-R-E-I-D-E-N-B-A-C-H. The nice thing on Audible, if you just type in Angela when it hits B, Breidenbach is one of the authors that comes up because you Yay. are yeah, you are a best-selling author. And again, that's <laughs> audible.com slash motherhood or text motherhood to 500, 500 to get started. Now I want to talk to you guys about your, your writing careers and how you got started. You know, Angela, you talked about starting in your forties, Kara, you sound like you started maybe in your twenties or you look so young, you could have been like 12. I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how did you get started, Kara? Um, oh, wow. So I had been a big reader my whole life. You know, all of the stories of me from my childhood and my toddlerhood, you know, involve, revolve around books, really. Um, and But I'd never really thought about being a writer or wanted to be a writer. And then in my early 20s, um, I have this distinct memory. I was having coffee um, with a friend one day and I was having a bit of a moan at her because I was have, re having real trouble finding books novels that you know I connected with you know I you know there were there were some books where I would be reading them and then I'd hit you know a really racy scene I guess that I didn't feel particularly comfortable with um and then there'd be other books that I'd read and you know the heroine was in her 20s or 30s and her whole life just revolved around you know wanting to find a man and that wasn't the place that I was in either uh and so my friend said to me well if you can't find anything that you like to read, why don't you just try writing it yourself? 
And I kind of laughed at her and put it to one side. And then about six months later, I was um, with my parents for Christmas. At the time, they lived in Australia uh, in a rural area. I was there for three weeks and kind of ran out of things to do. So <laughs> I kind of thought, well, you know, I've, I've got nothing better to do. Why not, why not give it a try? Um, and I quickly discovered that it was much harder than it looked. And I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but I also kind of fell in love with the idea of, you know, writing a story and having these these characters who I was breathing to life. And um, and that manuscript took me um, a, a, couple of, a couple of years. Um, and at the end of that, I entered it in its first contest. And I got scores that would make your eyes water <laughs> and realized I didn't know anything about, you know, plotting or how to write a good story. And I, I guess I kind of faced a decision about, well, if I'm going to do this, am I really willing to, to put in the work to learn how to do this well? Um, or is this kind of a fun thing that I've done to the side and now I've kind of, you know, written, written this manuscript, but it's, you know, that's kind of going to be it. Uh, so in New Zealand, you know, we're, we're small, so we're pretty limited uh, in terms of, you know, our, our writing workshops and our conferences and kind of our face-to-face -face connections with other writers. Uh, and it was kind of the year before I was due to get married to my husband, and I had this realisation that soon I'd have to account to someone else for what I did with my money. So I, I had one last splurge, which was to go, to go to my first American Christian Fiction Writers Conference in 2009 in Denver. Uh, and so I went and I did um, workshops and I pitched to agents and I met amazing writers. And yeah, that was, I guess, really where it cemented for me you know, yes, I really want to do this and I really want to put in what it's going to take to learn how to do this well. Um, it's interesting because I was at that same conference. Were you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because uh, inviting you to be on with Sandra and I today was actually through Romance Writers of America, Faith, Hope and Love chapter and not ACFW. No. So, <laughs> I just think it's really, a, it is a small world, even though it's Montana, New Zealand you know, and, and California, it's, it's a small world, isn't it? it so really let's talk is. about some of these associations that you guys belong to. Like, why would you belong to Romance Writers of America? I have my card from 1989 that shows you how long ago I was a member, you know, and that was in my, my way, way early 20s um, when I first started. And, you know, why would you become a member of these two groups? Um. Well, for me, um, I joined. Well, you're the president, so you have to be a member. No, I'm not. I'm not the president of those. I'm. A, I'm a president of Christian Authors Network. So. Oh, okay. You know, well, three. And, okay. And I actually have been member of quite a few different ones over the time. And then what I've done is narrowed it down to the ones that I need for my particular career right now. Okay. So um, I'm looking at actually joining two more organizations. And one of those is ICVM and is the International Christian Dual Media. And that's because of screenwriting and because filmmakers need people who know how to write a novel so they can have their film novelized. And uh, novel, novel writers want their movie, their film. Oh, my goodness. I can't even talk. <laughs> Good thing you write bestsellers. <laughs> oh, my gosh but they want their books taken to screen. So screen to book and, and book to screen. So that's why that organization is pending for me. And then 
Romance Writers of America was the first one that I'd actually heard of when I started my desire to actually be professional with it. And so I started with the Idaho Writers League, which is a very small one, and I'm in Missoula. And it was that conference that year was in Coeur d'Alene, which is two and a half hours away. So it was reachable, you know. And then from there, I met people like uh, Robin Lee Hatcher and um, and I met uh, a couple of other writers who I just dearly still love to this day. And they told me about Romance Writers of America, because I had never heard of it. So I joined that in 2005. And from there, I learned about ACW. And uh, to be perfectly honest, it's a, it's a nice organization, but it just isn't, it isn't where I need to be right now for where I'm going with, you know, screenwriting and uh, international genealogy and travel and things like that. So I, I've moved on from there and I was asked to join the Christian Authors Network because I love marketing and they wanted to make me their marketing officer. And then in 2013, I became president when they needed one. And so it's, it's not just networking. It's also what vehicle is going to meet the needs for your career at the same time for you to continue to get the education and process uh, through to be able to network, to meet agents, to meet editors. You need to be a part of an organization that's going to support the kind of writing you do because there's thriller writers that have completely different organizations and there's, there's even the Western women, uh, you know, writers. And so there's so many, but it really has to meet the career need and the educational need and even the marketing need that you have at the time to choose. And many of us belong to many more than just one organization. Do you still belong to RWA? Kara? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm a member of both ACFW and RWA, um, like you say, because they're the, the right places for me right now um, in my career. The first one that I joined um, was ACFW way back when, you know, I knew that I had a lot to learn and, you know, they offered some great courses both online and through their conference. They offered a really great mm-hmm. place to start and, you know, and build, build that knowledge. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's lots of incredible organizations out there and like Angie says, it's really about what, you know, what fits where you're at and what you need and, um, what you write. Well, I think it's interesting because, you know, you, you look at these books and you think, oh, well, somebody just sat down, put pen to paper and that's about it, but it's actually a much bigger involved process. And I'd love to talk about like, you know, both for you and, and, and Kara, you know, what, what did that process look like in getting your first book published? That's a big question. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Kara, do you want to answer first? Or do you want me to go first? Oh, no, I'm, I mean, I'm really happy to answer. So, ah, oh, so yes, I went to my first conference in 2009 um, and pitched that very first manuscript, despite its terrible contest scores, because it was, you know, I guess it was kind of like my practice one. And while I knew it wasn't up to, at all, up to what it needed to be, you know, I didn't, I also needed some real pointers in terms of where I guess its biggest holes were. Um, So one of the things that I learned at my first conference was things like um, that I have, you know, a good natural voice for things like dialogue, um, but I'm not good at all at plotting. <laughs> so, so that was kind of my first pointer. And, you know, I pitched to some editors and agents and I was really lucky to get some 
really nice rejections. Uh, and Steve Lobby, actually, who was one of the agents that I picked to kind of gave me the piece of advice that's kept me or kept me going um, from there to sit. It wasn't until seven years later when my first novel was um, was published. And he wrote an, a rejection that said, you know, you have some, you know, great ideas but remember, you know, writing is a marathon. It's not a sprint and it might not be this story. It might be the next one or it might be the one after that. So that really encouraged me to um, to put that one aside and kind of keep moving with the next thing because I, I guess as a writer, one of the temptations you can face is you've poured all of this energy and this love into the story um, and you just want to stay with it until someone else realizes it's as great as you do. <laughs> and it can be really hard to let it go. Um, so I kind of, I, I moved on and um, the next, so I actually started kind of writing two books at once. I started writing the book that um, became Then There Was You. Uh, and I entered that in a couple of contests and I got, actually got, incredible feedback on it and I finaled but I got some really consistent feedback which was um, your book is set in Australia there's no market in America for books set in Australia if, if you want this book to succeed you need to relocate it to America <coughs> excuse me um, and I thought about that but actually the Australian location is critical to the story because a big thing about the heroine's um, journey is that she's completely out of her comfort zone and she's moved to um, a new country. So I, I just, I couldn't put it back in America because that kind of, you know, took away one of the big things that she was um, struggling with or being confronted by was being out of her comfort zone. And so then I started a, um, a new story um, and funnily enough, it's the story that eventually became um, One Thing I Know, which is the one that just got published this year. Uh, and I pitched that, and I was really lucky enough to... Um, it, was, it was published through Simon & Schuster. It was published through Simon & Schuster, yeah, just this year. So in 2012, it was the manuscript that got me my agent, who's Chip, called Chip McGregor. And he shopped it around, and it got a whole lot of interest from publishers, um, but it was one of those situations where they were saying, you know, we love Cara's voice and we love the story, but, you know, we don't have any openings for romance right now or we've just acquired something that's quite similar in a high-level theme kind of way. You know, it just wasn't the right time um, for, for the story. So then I, um, one, of, one of the publishers I met with at a conference um, said to me, have you ever thought about writing a story set in New Zealand around the Lord of the Rings. And I kind of laughed at her and, said, <laughs> and thought that's kind of the craziest thing that I've ever heard because for the last five years, all I've heard is that there's no market for stories set outside of America. Um, and now you're saying, why don't I write a story set, just not in New Zealand, but set around the Lord of the Rings movies, which were obviously filmed here. Um, but I got home from that conference and I didn't have anything else that I was working on. So I just kind of started writing the story um, about this uh, New Zealand tour guy called Ali and this American entrepreneur called Jackson who comes on this Lord of the Rings tour. And because I didn't have any expectations for it, I really didn't think it was ever going to go anywhere. Um, I kind of just wrote with, I guess, abandon and I wrote for fun and I had a great time writing a story um, set in my country that, you know, I know really well. And because I've previously had a job that was tourism related, I knew a lot of stuff around kind of the Lord of the Rings and New Zealand's tourism industry. And I sent it off to my agent. Um, 
and kind of forgot about it because I just had no expectations. I really thought that he would come back and say, you know, it's a really nice story, Cara, but, you know, there's no market for anything in New Zealand. American readers like to read books that are set in America, so I can't really chop this with American publishers. Um, so you could have actually knocked me over when a few months later he came back and said, oh, Simon and Schuster are really interested <laughs> in the story. Um, so, yeah, so that was in 2014 and I'd signed um, a contract with them in early 2015 and close to you my first novel was published in 2016 so yeah it was it was definitely a, a huge I guess lesson for me and you know you, you need to pay attention to what is happening in the market and you know and, and what publishers are looking for but you know sometimes the thing that they're actually looking for is something they don't even know that they're looking for <laughs> I'm sorry. I was going to say the the best thing that you did there, though, was you took a universally enjoyed story with The Lord of the Rings. And because it's universal, you were able to do that. Whereas if you're taking some other story that, you know, nobody knows, uh, you don't have the same capability of being able to be universally understood and known. So that's where that link was between it. But I think now with what you, um, we're talking about uh, with the hybrid, being able to uh, write stories that we want to write, you're able to set more stories within New Zealand and Australia, aren't you? Yeah. So both of my hybrid books, Then There Was You and All Made Up, are set in Australia, actually. Um, you know, and as it would happen, then there was you was the, you know, the one that's won the Rita and being my bestseller by far and, you know, had amazing things happen. So, and that was because um, when After Can't Help Falling, my second, my sophomore novel came out, my imprint at Simon & Schuster and underwent a, a quite a significant restructure and they kind of said to my agent we're we're not going to be acquiring anything for at least another year and I was faced with this decision of well do I potentially go you know two three years <coughs> between books and not be able to give my readers anything new um, or do I kind of do something that was really scary to me at the time and actually you know go out and do this on my own um, and then there was you, you know, was there, it was finished, it was something that had, you know, finaled in contests and had got really good feedback, but the location for publishers had been an issue. So, you know, I thought, well, you know, I've got this book here, so I might as well take a chance and put it out there. And yeah, it's definitely was an incredible um gift I guess in terms of the way that it's been responded to by readers and the opportunities that it's had and you know being having it being indie published meant that I had you know control over the cover and control over my own deadlines and when I released it and what I did around it um, mm -hmm. so yeah it's, it's been an absolutely wonderful experience. Well, and the funny yeah. thing, I was just looking it up on Amazon, you know, watching it. I looked, you know, and it's like, oh my gosh, it, like that's the one with the most reviews, the most everything, like go figure. Yeah. And you have the, you have the, looks like the bridge and the opera house right on the front cover. So it's like no mystery here that it's not set in like Beverly Hills or New York City. Yeah. And nobody and really wants that. They, they really do want the adventure. But because these companies are, you know, they have to follow their business model. Yep. Uh, 
being a hybrid author gives us the ability to create our own business model. Now, what does hybrid mean? Can you guys explain that for those listeners who don't know what that means? It has a, a different meanings for, um, so there's hybrid publishers, meaning that they, you, they can do traditional publishing or they can partner with you in parts of publishing. But when we're referring to an indie author who also traditionally publishes, we also call them a, an, a hybrid author. So it's kind of a slang for we, we wear both legs of the pants in the industry. <laughs> <laughs> now, does that help or hurt? Does anybody even care? It can be both. If, you're, if your indie books don't do well and you try then to cross over to traditional, then that can really hurt you. You may even want to use a different name, you know. But if your indie books are doing well and they consider well 5,000 and above because the, the normal author sells anywhere. If, if you're lucky, maybe 180 to 1,000 books, that that's really normal. Um, and that's even within the traditional publishing, maybe you get 3,500 or, you know, whatever. Um, but my indie books are the ones who've sold the most. The problem is being able to prove your numbers because Amazon doesn't really do well with numbers, especially because they have the, uh, uh, the Kindle unlimited and the Kindle unlimited. So now you're looking at page count, which isn't really a page count, you know? So, I've tried to screenshot, you know, when I get a bestseller tag and, um, and then I do try, I do have access to the numbers that have sold on that particular, um, dashboard. But now I'm, now I'm going wide. So I'm going international, which means I'm using things like draft to digital Kobo, um, Google books, Apple books, you know, and there's quite a few others that I didn't even realize was out there until uh scribd you know there's so many others and so to to be an indie author or a hybrid author really you're an entrepreneur you are really running your own business and you've got to find a way to best um watch your own numbers uh, to the best that you can and then those numbers are crucial if you want to go back over into the traditional arena where you prove your numbers per book. But, you know, I've, because of the different ways that I've been able to market and repackage my books, uh, uh, the debutante queen alone is in some was, I lost count over 50,000 books and it's closer in the 60,000 now, you know, in sales. And that's my indie book. Right. So, you know, it's like, but then you can go back and you can look at a traditional. I've got a traditional book that's maybe sold maybe 3,500 and I've got another one that's sold well over that. So it just depends on the book and on the marketing and on the time of, of day, the time of year. Well, and what's going on with the economy, what's going on. I mean, certain books have different trends. You know, I know in the summer, I look for really light reading, you know, like I want beach reads. I want to go to some cove somewhere and, you know, have this whole escapist thing. But then right around November, I want to read Christmas stories. Like, you know, there's, there's, you know, we all have those trends, I think, you know, as readers or maybe as writers too. Well, and you have Hallmark coming out now, uh, this last couple of years where, they they want movies and books and so it it's entering the market and kind of shaking things up a little bit because they sell directly through their own site and i think other publishers are starting to say oh 
well, uh, look at that. They can do it. Maybe we don't need this big behemoth. I don't know, you know. Mm. So there's a lot going on. And I know New Zealand, Kara, um, Amazon is different there. And it, do you have as high-priced books in New Zealand as Australia does? How does that work? So we, we're we not the same as Australia in the sense that they still are fiercely, um, I guess, protective of their publishing industry. In fact, they're kind of, you know, their own industry where you don't have the ability to import um, books in the same way. We um, deregulated our, um, I guess, our publishing importing industry about 20 years ago. Um, so we have, I guess, more access to books in that sense um, than Australians. But what really hits us is the exchange rate. So, yeah. you know, what the New Zealand dollar is doing um, versus the US dollar, when our dollar is really strong against the US, um, books are really cheap. But when our dollar is weak, you know, you can be paying 30 $35 for a paperback and wow. so that's wow that's what where we get really it's where we get really hurt and bookstores really struggle is what's happening um with the exchange rate I think one of the other things I was just going to say quickly about um one of the real benefits I found from being a hybrid author is being able to I control the price on then there was you and all made up and so that um because I price them more cheaply than my traditional books are, I've found that as being a really great way to get new readers because, mm -hmm. you know, while people might not be willing to pay $9, $10 for an ebook from a traditional publisher for an author that they haven't tried before, um, they're often willing to pay $3.99 or $4.99. Um, so I've found for me, my two indie books have actually been a really great gateway to, for, for new readers because, you know, they read those two books at a cheaper price point and they really enjoy them, which makes them willing to then go and pay a bit more for my traditionally published novels. I think that's exactly the thing that helps indies and you make often more money on the, the lower price than you do on a traditional royalty. Yeah. So uh, I'm not knocking traditional because I do both. I'm not knocking indie because I do both. But I can see that there's pros and cons on each side of it. And I find that it enriches my personal uh, career in business to do both mm -hmm. yeah. if I can. Well, but it's like, you know, from a reader standpoint, I like to go into, like when I go to Sam's Club or Costco, I like to look and see what books they're featuring because I kind of know that they've already vetted them. You know, they're not going to be awful. And sometimes, you know, you buy a book on Amazon, it's just awful. No offense to anyone who wrote an awful book. I've written many awful things in my career, done many awful shows. Like I'm not, you know, trying to throw any stones. But then there are times where I want to go fishing, you know, like on Amazon or on Audible and try something new but you're right I don't want to I don't want to break the bank I'll pay 16 or 20 dollars for a really nice hardback from an author I love because I'm going to keep that book it'll be like a friend in my you know my book case and I'll you know revisit those characters later on and read them years later but if it's just something that I want to read at the beach or read on an airplane then yeah I'm willing to roll the dice on something else so I think there's room for both I think it's important to note, though, that big box stores, whether it's um, Costco or Sam's Club or, or uh, Walmart or whatever, there is a lot lower royalty rate to authors when they get into those stores. And they think, oh, well, that's okay because you're going to re recoup it in volume. But there's another side to that, and that is that they have returns. 
And when they return a thousand books versus 10 books from a bookstore, that goes against your royalties. And it is, you know, it can be very painful. Or one of the stores closes, they don't ship the books left over to another store. They just ship them back and the oh, other wow. store has to order them. So there's some things that are kind of twisty in how that all works. And it's really important to know that, you know, going into it, because your royalty is going to be lower and your risk is going to be a lot higher. And the same kind of thing happens to publishers shipping back and forth with Amazon. They, they'll, they will order a case of books one month. And if only one sold out of it, they'll ship those books back to the publisher. And in the next month, they'll order another case. They won't just keep that to hold over. Um, they have a very short contract time with those publishers. So the publishers are getting eaten up by shipping costs. Wow. Back and, forth. and a lot of people don't realize that. And they start to go, well, why don't they pay better? Why don't they do this? Why don't they do that? Well, they're getting not just nickel and dimed. They're, they're getting, you know, hamstrung quite often with things like shipping costs and overhead expenses. And so it, can be a very difficult um, part of the industry. As indie authors or hybrids, you have the opportunity to be able to do more in audiobook and in the um, ebook realm to help uh, support those, those sales without having to take on so much in shipping. But also, I would go through Ingram Spark for you know your paperback sales because that's going to make it a lot easier and more international in draft digital and Kobo, you know, and some smash words, some of these other companies help you be able to reach those people without having to take on the uh, constant returns, which can be a really damaging thing, especially in a small business. Like one author is their own small business. You know, that's a big, big cost. Yeah. And I mean, I often have readers come to me and kind of say, you know, why is your, you know, your indie book half the price of these other books? Or, you know, they don't necessarily, they actually, they don't even differentiate. So they'll just say, why are these two books so much cheaper and these three books much more expensive? Um, uh-huh. And so I always take the opportunity to explain to them, well, you know, with my indie books, it's just me in my house with my computer contracting out whatever I need to do. But with my traditionally published books, you know, they've got a building in New York, they've got printers, they've got warehouses, I've got my editors. Is, I've got my cover designers, they've got so many more overheads that they have to try and recoup um, than I do. Here is my, you know, my one person small business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, right, it's a business. It's like if somebody hires me to build a website for their company, they pay just me and maybe two or three other people, you know, for different things that I need to outsource. But if you go to a big agency, you know, you're paying their electric bill, their rent, their all these things. And, you know, but I think both are necessary. And what I love about what's happened in the digital community is, you know, everybody said, oh, newspapers are going to die. Magazines are going to die. Oh, books are going to be dead. You know, all that stuff. Well, 10 years later, we're finding people are reading more than, uh, you know, ever And, you know, and I'll just share this because if I really, really love a book and it's a resource to me, either in my company or I just love the book, I'll buy both. I will buy the digital because it'll stay in my digital library. I can take my Kindle or my Nook wherever I go. And then I will have the hard copy book because there's sometimes you just want to feel that book. And, um, you know, so who would ever think I would buy both? 
or also by Actually, the audiobook. Like, you know, different mediums for storytelling work for different things. And it's yeah. actually become more common for people to buy the ebook, the audiobook, and the paperback version. Then we realize um, there's options where you can say, hey, you can get the ebook for 99 cents if you buy the paperback, or you can get the <laughs> love the bundles. Yeah. I love the bundles. When you bundle it for me, you know, and if you make it priced right, that I feel the value, you know, if all three of them are going to cost me 30 bucks and you sell me all three for 20 bucks, I will buy that versus paying, you know, $8.99. Well, think about it. If you got to go for a long drive or you've got a long commute, you might want to read your paperback book at home and then listen to the audio book while you're on your commute. I know I listen to audio a lot when I'm on planes because planes are noisy and you never know. I love children and I love babies, but you never know when a baby's going to be having ear problems on that plane. And then you're having ear problems on that plane, you know? So I tend to listen to a lot of audio uh, when I fly and I fly a lot. So, I call those the red eye screaming baby express because yes. I have to fly a lot from New York to LA. And I'm like, when I get on, I'm like looking around, like, please don't be, don't, don't ever bring a toddler on an overnight flight. You know, like that baby's going to have to ride on the wing. But you know, when my mom was dying, I flew LA to New York many, many times with two toddlers Right. You know, and it was like, at one point it was like dueling banjos. I got one, you know, in the bucket seat and the other one in his, in his seat and he kept sliding down because there was no booster and I would pull him back up and he'd slide down again. <laughs> but it's now nice I'm... to be able to transfer around those different formats and, and find ways to um, manage yourself because yeah. You, yeah, not, you can't always manage the people around you, but you can can manage yourself no the digitals like you know like I have the world's heaviest bag anywhere I go because I always take my iPad I always take my Kindle or my Nook and then I take my MacBook Pro you know so right there like put my bag you know anything else and then I have to have my journal and then I have to have you got to guys have to see this this is from Australia this is this beautiful pencil case that's like solid gold. It looks like a 70 solid gold dancer, but you cannot lose this in a tote bag. So you know, can see it from space. Um, but you know, my, my stuff weighs a ton. And when I can reach in and pull out and you guys will laugh because I'm just going to show you this on the air because where did I put them all? Oh my God. I have like 10 Kindles, Nooks, Fires, big stack of them and they're all loaded up because sometimes they ride around in my purse and then they don't get charged. So I always keep them like stuffed in that bag back there with fully charged so I can grab and go. And, um, you know, it's ridiculous. I, I look like a, you know, a homeless person with a collection of digital devices. <laughs> so nobody would ever believe you were homeless. <laughs> no, no. Like plugging into everywhere I can, but you know, the idea that we as moms, especially, you know, when you're juggling kids, juggling, like for me, I have elder care issues. I care, Kara, for my 88-year-old dad in my house. So, you know, we're, we're rolling. And to be able to be entertained, I'll be honest, I'm not really good when I'm not entertained. <laughs> my, main, my mind has to be going all the time. And so, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it's so, it's so great. I mean, the thing that I love is that, you know, as a mum, I don't very often have an hour 
to mm. sit down to read. But if I got my Kindle, I've got 20 minutes on the bus or I've got 10 minutes in the doctor's office, you know, and all of that yeah. time builds up and means that you can, you just get through so many books that you otherwise yeah. would never have the opportunity to read. Oh my gosh. I've read them at soccer games. I've read them at pick up and drop off in the, the school. I've read it. You know, nothing in schools ever starts at time. No disrespect to the schools, <laughs> but you but go to like a Christmas concert and it's like six o'clock. I get there 10 or 15 minutes before and this thing doesn't start till 620. There's 35 minutes of reading and I do. I just sit there and you know people think I'm unfriendly but that's okay because I have my whole little story world to live in. I go between my apps you know to read whether depending on what it is because sometimes I'm doing my research and I love getting the Google books that are the antiques. I think I mentioned that in another show and I will do my research on my phone using a Google app for, uh, for the Google books and Google play or whatever it is now called. And to me, it's fabulous. I love reading 100, 200 year old books. It's fabulous to see what was their vernacular back then, you know, and then it really does put me into the mindset for writing the, the Western historical romance, you know, cause I'm getting the language that they used at the time. And it's just awesome. That is yeah. cool. I never would think about that. I bought a digital book that everybody laughed at me when I told them what I bought. And I'm like, it was the history of barns, you know, because I grew up in a farming community where barns were, everybody had a barn, you know, and if like a tornado took a barn, you'd be like, oh, that poor barn, you know, like, <laughs> but I really enjoyed it. It was like 300 pages. I don't know how you could write 300 pages about barns, but this lady did. And she had pen and ink <laughs> drawings and you know, I was glued to the barn book for like two months. Yeah. Oh, fun, 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 fun. It doesn't okay. make fun for conversation because everybody's like, hey, you know, we're at the gym. We're talking about nutrition. We're talking about fitness. We're talking about, <laughs> you know, look at new workouts out things. And did you watch what's on Hallmark? Can I tell you about barns? <laughs> <laughs> what are you reading right now, Kara? Um, what am I reading right now? I'm actually reading, um, so an author acquaintance of mine called Lindy, Lindsay Harrell has a book coming out next year called The Joy of Falling. Um, and it's actually, most of it is set in New Zealand. So I'm doing a New Zealand eye read for her to, you know, check locations and check language and, you know, check the, what she's got people doing and making comments, you know, like, no, New Zealand shuts down between Christmas and New Year's. There's absolutely no way, you know, people would be doing these sorts of things. And it's really, you know, I'm really enjoying it because you get, a, you get the opportunity to read an upcoming book long before it's hitting the shelves. Um, and two, I think you kind of realize how many things are so cultural that, you know, the best research on Google, it, you're, you're just never going you're, you're never going to find out. You have to have someone right. who's actually there and actually knows and can actually, you know, give you kind of that local insight. So, um, that's one of the ones that I'm reading at the moment. And then I'm also in the middle of Susan Meisner's The Last Year of the War. She's um, one of my favorite authors. So whenever her, her book comes out once a year, I always tend to sit on it for a few months because I know that it's going to be another year before the next one. Um, and then I tend to read her books really slowly, like a chapter or two at a time, um, to try and make the, make the story last as long as I can. Yeah, no, I hear you. I've got... Um... I've got genealogy classes going on. I graduate next June. So I'm, I'm, I'm reading a lot of nonfiction right now. I have some study books and things like that. So I'm reading a lot of genealogical uh, stuff and um, 
And then because I'm just finishing this book, I'm double checking my facts. So I'm online uh, reading and checking facts on what, um, what Churchill Downs original history in wow. Kentucky and stuff like that. So that's been kind of fun, you know. So I'm doing a lot of web reading at the moment. That's cool. All right. So we got, we've got books, we've got horses, we got barns. We're, we're good to go. I want to thank you guys for being my guest today. I want to encourage um, the Amazon prime members to get that deal on audible, visit audible.com slash motherhood or text motherhood to 500, 500. You're going to want to get Kara Isaac's book. Then there was you on audible and you have your choice of four for Angela Breidenbach, 11 Piper's Piping, The Debutante Queen, Taking the Plunge, and A Healing Heart. So thank you guys so much for being my guest today. I've had a super fun time. We've had some laughs. We had just a wonderful time. And how cool is it we can come from Los Angeles to Montana to New Zealand, all see each other. Like I love these simulcasts because we can see each other. Um, but uh, thank you guys so much for being my guest today. And we'll be back again next week. Thanks for spending time with us today on Military Mom Talk Radio. We've got more than 200 episodes available to you anytime on iTunes or at our website, MilitaryMomTalkRadio.com. Find us on Facebook or Twitter. We look forward to another great conversation with you on Military Mom Talk Radio.